All right, good morning, everyone. So we'll be picking up where Pastor left off last week in Mark chapter 10. And so from here on out, I'll be taking over the 11 o'clock study. And so you'll get used to seeing me up here. So uh, let's pick up where, or kind of rehash what we had talked about last week briefly before we get into the new material. And so we had gone through Mark chapter 9 in verse 33, you know, that common theme of who is the greatest. And so the disciples always asking this question of, you know, are they going to be the greatest in the kingdom and all that. And then so Jesus responds, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So we have this theme already starting of receiving it as a child. So we'll see that much more today. But then he gets into anyone not against us is for us. And so, you know, the the guy casting out demons. And so he was saying, well, he's doing good. Why are you stopping him there? And then the temptations of sin of causing the little one, again, the child theme, to stumble. And then teaching about divorce. And then now, today we'll be picking up in verse 13 of chapter 10, the title, Let the Children Come to Me. But before we get into that, let's open with invocation and the Lord's Prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so like I said, we'll be picking up in verse 13. And so looking at this passage, we're going to even hear it this coming Sunday with the baptism of the Sheen's new baby, Matthew. It's used within our baptismal liturgy. And so we're quite familiar with it. And so we're going to look at it, see why we use it in the baptismal liturgy, even though, you know, there's no specific baptism mentioned here. So what importance does it have for us? Because people on both sides of the debate of, you know, infant baptism and those who say infants, you know, you can't baptize them or anything like that, they'll point to this passage and say, why do you use this to support infant baptism? It's not talking about baptism at all here. And so we're going to look at why it is, in fact, about baptism. And so then we'll answer any questions you have on infant baptism. We'll kind of go on a little bit of an excursion there. And then we'll see just how far we get today. If we get to the rich young man, Jesus foretelling of his death a third time, and we'll just kind of play it by ear as the hour goes on. But starting out in verse 13 of chapter 10. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, And the disciples rebuked them. So these people, you know, these great crowds are all around him. He had just taken his disciples into the house. And so now all these people are coming with these children that he might touch them. And so throughout Mark's gospel and the other gospels, we see this touching being for healing a lot of the times. You know, all these people bringing the paralytic to Jesus that he might touch them or even other people trying to just touch the fringes of his garment with the woman and the discharge of blood. You know, so a lot of times there's this healing aspect to it. 
But we're not told any of that here. They simply are bringing them to him that he might touch them. And then so in the parallel passage of this in Matthew, he says that he might touch and pray. So we're given a little bit more information there. Whether or not there was some kind of healing or malady that these children had, you know, we're not told. But either way, they're still looking for this blessing from Christ himself. So we have these crowds bringing the children in. And you get this picture in verse 14, or in 13 still. And the disciples rebuked them. You have this image, I like to picture of, you know, Jesus and the disciples in the house with the door there, all the disciples, you know, standing in the doorway trying to block these kids, little kids from coming in. Not that that's the case of what's happening. But just them rebuking them and saying, you know, Jesus has more important things going on. Or maybe he's tired from all of his other teaching, his miracles, and he needs some rest here. Either way, the disciples are rebuking them of, you know, send them away. He's, he's too busy for that. So, you know, they always get lost in that idea of Jesus coming to be the earthly king. You know, kicking out the Romans, doing all that. He's got bigger fish to fry, potentially, than these little children here. And so they lose sight of the real purpose for which he came. Any thoughts on that before we move on further? So the disciples were rebuking the parents, bringing the children. Um, Mm -hmm. At that time, in that culture, uh, I I think right now, the the Jewish uh, people have this tradition of around 12 years of age, there's a bar mitzvah where the boy comes of age and so forth. Was that in existence at that time? And was that a coming of age thing uh, that caused the disciples to rebuke these people? I mean, what? Yeah, I don't know about the origins of the bar mitzvah, Pastor. Do you know when, if that was, I don't know if it's a more modern ceremony there. But either way, I mean, I mean, even today with children, you know, they're sometimes seen as, you know, not full members of society or anything like that. And so we even look at that further of them, why Christ specifically uses children here. But, you know, what benefit can, do these children have for Jesus is kind of, Potentially, they're thinking of, you know, they're just so some the kids. Is a strong, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, I don't know if that's a language used with the man casting out demons. No, it's not the language of rebuking. But I mean, even Jesus rebuking Peter, you know, we have that same language. So it is that more forceful of, you know, get them, get them out of here. Any other questions or thoughts? Well, the other one I'm just re- thinking about is that they are supposed to know the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So when they're rebuking the kids, I'm also wondering why they're not understanding their Old Testament. When Jesus talked, or when God talked, let's say with Samson, before he was born, he told the parents what to do. And, and then when... so. And these other things, you know, I'm just looking at Samuel and stuff like that. So when they're saying, oh, a child has no understanding, they're almost like they're oblivious to what's going on in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, even the real fact for why Jesus came. They sometimes lose sight of that, of, again, this earthly king kicking out the Romans, doing all that. And so, I mean, we too, in that situation, how quickly would we potentially forget all the Old Testament prophecies of why the Messiah came and focus on the here and now for that? So, and Because when I look at Samuel, or uh, like since uh, Samson, he was told he would begin to take care of the Philistines. He wasn't going to do it, but he was beginning, and that was before he was born. So they should have known, hey, God works with people before they're born mm-hmm. and gives them their character and their development. So yeah. sometimes I'm wondering if they don't pick up on that right away sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. Any other thoughts or reflections? Right, so we're going to, I'm going to read through the rest of the passage, and then we'll kind of backtrack, talk about infant baptism, and look at it as a whole here. But in verse 14, But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So we have this image of, again, Jesus seeing what's going on, the disciples rebuking these, the parents, bringing the children and everything. And then Jesus sees this. He gets you know, kind of annoyed or indignant, as the text says. He says, you know, let the children come to me. So again, we have this recurring theme of the children not only being part of the kingdom of God, but holding them up as the example for what it means to receive the kingdom of God is to be like a child here. And so then that kind of gets us into good excursus on infant baptism and why we use this text for it. And so a little bit of background. I won't go too deep on the Greek. Let me know if I get too nerdy on it, but it's just a force of habit. So here, oh, good. (laughs) So with any language, especially with English, you know, we have different words that we use for children. So we have toddler, infant, all of those. It's common with any kind of language like that. And so the Greek isn't going to be any different than that. And so even here, as we see children and the word children appearing all throughout Scripture, sometimes it's going to be different words that they're using to translate it. And so here in this text, it's pideon. And so this is a child, and likely anywhere between a newborn to seven or eight is kind of the time frame and the age of what, how that term is normally used. There's also like technos, which is just kind of a general offspring or a child, as you would put it. Uh, there's micros, like a little one. Zacchaeus was a micros, a little, ma- little man there, where we get micro and all that. But then in the parallel account to this, so in Luke's account of this, instead of using pideon, he uses the word brephos. And that one is used specifically for these infants, these very young little children that you hold in your arms. And we even see that in our account of Mark of 
Jesus taking them up in his arms. And so Luke kind of gives us further insight of exactly what the age of these children would have been. So it would have been these very young infants, you know, potentially still nursing to that effect there. And so that's a little bit of the background on just the language. And so as we go through it and we look at different texts, I'll kind of point that out of, okay, this is the word that he's using here, and this is one he's using over there. But so infant baptism in today's culture and today's church has been quite an anomaly. You, know, you say you're going to be baptizing your baby, and many people in other denominations are looking at you with a funny face of, what do you mean you're baptizing them? How's that work? And so they kind of scold you, and it's just not a common thing at all. Even within our own families, we likely know someone in our immediate family or extended family who would kind of look at us funny of, why do you baptize little babies? So I think it's important for us to take some time and look at why it is that we practice it, why it is, in fact, in accord with Scripture. And so we have a better defense than just saying, well, that's what we've kind of always done. And so we just baptize babies because that's what our grandparents did and all the way back. So we need to have a little more scriptural support than just, eh, I don't know. So we'll spend a little bit of time on that and hop in at any time with any questions. And we'll kind of pause at the end for any more that you guys might have. But first, it would be kind of helpful to see... Oh, Neil. Yeah, and just as a comment, maybe you're going to cover this, just to start this off. Mm-hmm. Uh, this seems to be any contact I have heard or read or spoke to people uh, of the evangelical type. It, it centers around decision theology. child can't make a decision. And they have this doctrine, which is written nowhere in Scripture, about the age of decision and responsibility. And that's not, not even there. And that we've heard of that. Uh, but a couple of things come to mind, and maybe you're going to cover this anyway. But uh, one is the passage, and I can't remember where, I mean, it's Luke, where Jesus talks about the little ones that believe in me. And in the Greek, the word that is used there it refers to infants. Mm-hmm. And maybe you use that word. I don't remember. Um, so that's one. They believe in me. Mm-hmm. Well, if <laughs> I, I, I've talked to an evangelical, and I've never heard that passage. They're befuddled because they don't know any Greek at all. They know what you're talking about. <laughs> and so there's the one. Uh, then we have practices. You mentioned practices. Well, why do we practice this? Well, we just have always done it. No, it's a little more detailed than that. Uh, if you uh, look at, um, study some archaeology, um, and you go back, um, uh, the Christian archaeologists that have researched this, going back to the first century, they have found in the catacombs of Rome, they have found the symbols of baptism, the figure of a child being baptized in the catacombs. Mm-hmm. They, they hid there to escape persecution. Mm-hmm. And not only do they baptize there, they have baptismal fonts where little tiny um, pieces of water there, not 
immersion. Not th either one is, is fine, but the thing is, there's another point about the sprinkling of water and not necessarily immersion being involved. They couldn't do it there in general. And this is deep in the catacombs. And I am told that it's a, a, quite a journey to be able to go into these catacombs. They're deep in Rome and miles. Um, those are the two things that, that come to mind. And the other, the, the church fathers mentioned this on and off, um, beginning Ambrose, I believe, but I don't know, you know more <laughs> than the others, that um, there's references to, to the baptism of children, not just being, well, I, I guess we'll just go ahead and do that. No. The scriptural basis uh, are the words of Jesus, the little ones, and so on. And there are more, but you're going to cover that, so I won't keep talking. Go ahead. <laughs> no, yeah, you make some good points there. And I hadn't heard about any of the archaeology, but that would be something interesting to look at. And I think as we go through this and we talk about, you know, what other churches believe, teach, and confess for that, it would be helpful to still carry a sense of charity to them. You know, we're not trying to bash other denominations by doing all this, but if we have a good stance of what we believe and what we teach and what we confess, we also have to have a good defense against what other churches say. And so we have to look at what they first believe in order to then compare to what we believe and why we believe that is in accord with Scripture as it is. And so, yeah, we'll be hitting on a lot of those points, but if I happen to leave one of them out, let me know. <laughs> and so we're going to hit on a few main points that they're kind of big on of why they don't baptize infants. And the first one is... Well, there's no place in Scripture that it says to specifically baptize infants. And the more sarcastic response to that would be, well, there's no place to say, don't baptize infants. So if you want to use that logic. But more in line with Scripture, we can go to Matthew 28, 19 of, you know, go therefore and baptize all nations. And so, you know, as a child is born, even here in the U.S., they're automatically considered a citizen, they would be part of that nation. They would be part of the census of that nation. And so when Christ is saying baptize you know, all nations, babies are included in that there. Another example is in Acts 2, 38 to 39. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So the word for children there is that more generic term, technos, but that's not to the exclusion of infants being included in that. Another one is the baptism of Lydia and her household in Acts 16. You know, we're told her and her whole household was baptized so then they'll throw that argument against us of saying, well, it doesn't say that the children were there, that she had any children in the household, but you have Lydia, her household, her servants, their kids potentially. You know, you've got a bigger house than just a mom, dad, and a couple kids back in that day, potentially. And so, and there's, you know, the Philippian jailer, and then he baptizes his whole household. And so the likelihood of within all of these examples that 
not one child was included in those households. Pretty good odds that a child was there. And then finally, in Colossians 2, you know, the comparison of circumcision and baptism being the new circumcision there. You know, circumcision taking place on the eighth day, as the Lord had commanded. And so, kind of drawing that conclusion from that as well. But then, another point that they will make is from conception on, you're automatically under a period of grace until you reach this aged age where you can understand the sin and the punishment that comes as a result of that. And so that will be their response whenever you talk about you know, stillborn children, and we'll get to that later on here. But any child that is dying there under this state of grace until they reach that age of maturity where they know good and evil and then purposely do something that is contrary to God then they have left that state of grace. So then it is necessary to be baptized. But we can even see with little infants, even though they can't speak, you know they know when they're not supposed to be doing something, or they cry just for attention, not even for anything else. Even a little two-year-old, you know, throwing a punch at you if they don't like the food that you gave them, anything like that. They don't have to be verbally cognizant of that and say what is right and what is wrong. We have this inerrant sin, and we'll talk at a few passages here. Yeah. And let's not forget the baby leaping in Elizabeth's womb. Yeah, we'll be looking at that. When the Savior, also in the womb, comes near. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. And so on this response to this idea of automatically from conception until this certain age, which is completely subjective depending on the kid's age and maturity. Just practically speaking, if it's the kid's salvation is at stake of the moment they reach that age, who determines what that age is? If you get 10 pastors in a room and they look at that kid and see how they interact, are they all going to agree on when that child has you know, turn that corner or not. And so if it's the child's salvation at stake, don't you think it would, God would put something in place that's a little more objective and not relying on our own ability to determine when that, flip, or when that switch has flipped there? But going scripturally there, uh, Matthew 51, or Psalm Fifty-one, five. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You have Romans 3, all sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And then even with children and adults, you know, we see the evidence of sin when death entered this world. And so, you know, at the fall of man, you had God saying, you know, the day you eat of that, you will surely die, or dying you will die, as Pastor Wolf Mueller likes to put it. But so, death is the result of sin. And so, unfortunately, we see infants dying. We see adults dying. You know, death isn't, no one can escape that potential of death at any moment. And so, that is the evidence of sin entering this world. And so, if children also suffer that, 
pretty good evidence that we are all in need of salvation and in need of being brought in through baptism there. And so then, you know, you can also go to the confessions of Article 2 on original sin that will give some great, great content there. Also in the Article 12 of the formula, paragraphs four or 6 through 8, you have children who are not baptized are not sinners before God, but righteous and innocent in their, inno- in their innocence because they have not yet gained the use of their reason. Children are saved without baptism. And so he's bringing this argument of these are all these things that different churches believe. And so they specifically call out that belief that the children are innocent and in no need of baptism. So even in our own confessions, they address that infant baptism, that you are, in fact, in need of that, even from birth on there. And so there's many more things within the confessions that we can go to, many other passages in Scripture that we could point to. You know, it's all throughout. We can even see it within our own lives, the evidence of that sin has entered. And no one, you know, from any age, you can't escape the sin that is in us there. Any thoughts on that before we move over to infant faith? And Chris is coming. And this brings to mind the thought, uh, if you watch what people do, that's uh, important. And there's a big contrast to what people did in the past and what they're doing now. Um, I've done a little work in uh, walking graveyards and uh, looking into ancestral information. And baptism was really high on the minds of most believing people. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of infant deaths happened, and you see the gravestones that say six days old, baptized, six, seven days old, etc. Mm-hmm. And uh, just a thought comes that, you know, if you wait and allow the individual to make a decision on, on a commitment or a baptismal, that's an individualistic act, and baptizing your young infant is, is a community, it's a Family. It's uh, God puts this uh, soul into a family, which is an incubator, kind of a safe house, a protected place in which he will grow in the instruction of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And if we understand that, that that's a cooperative uh, catechesis of that child in cooperation with the church and the pastors. Uh, so we've lost that, I think, in in American Christianity and see God's hand on it, that he is, the, the, you know, baptism is a means of grace, and his grace is delivered. And so anyway, I just wanted to make that comment and that contrast of what was done in the past. Mm-hmm. And they were acting out their faith and, and following the scripture. In my mm-hmm. And on your point of the community aspect of that, you know, we've really lost that vocation of teaching our children, you know, actual baptism sponsors. You know, they're not just signing on the dotted line and never see the kid again or maybe send them a card on their baptismal birthday. 
you know, what's the purpose of them is to help support and nurture that faith onward. And so instead we just kind of outsource it as we do want to do a lot of things. And, well, they'll pick something up on Sunday morning, you know, during the hour or something like that, as opposed to we just kind of neglected that responsibility of ours of what is the charge of that, of your vocation. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, all the time? Yeah. yeah. I say, <clears throat> this is ironic. What about, what about John the Baptist? Mm-hmm. The Baptists take that name, and they deny infant baptism, mm-hmm. but John recognized the baby in mm-hmm. the womb. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. The other thing I think God, I used to say, the God has made us, and not we ourselves, but that's the significance. Mm-hmm. I think we, are, we made ourselves know God had us born mm-hmm. physically, and he is the one who does the work of baptism, not we ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think And so that's what really gets to the heart of their confusion of why you can baptize infants is, well, it's a work that we do. Works don't save, therefore, baptism doesn't save. And it's just this sign, this ceremony that you do for that. And so you hit on that good, that good point there of baptism is not a work. I think Pastor brought up the example a few weeks ago. I can't remember what class, but you know, say you hand a homeless guy 20 bucks, and then he wants to take the credit of, well, if I hadn't reached out my hand... You know, I wouldn't have gotten that 20 bucks, so I'll pat myself on the back for that. And so you say, well, if I hadn't brought my child to the baptismal font, they would have been, wouldn't have been baptized. So, therefore, good job me. I did all the work. You know what I mean? And so it's that complete reversal of denying the gifts that God is actually giving in baptism. And so you talk about all the, or you look at all those passages of baptism now saves you, all of those. It's not saying you're saving yourself through being baptized. We're the object being acted upon. You know, it's the working of the Holy Spirit that pouring out upon you. And so you're just receiving that, even if you walk up to the baptismal font. It's not a work in that. But. I'm thinking, too, at first I was thinking, well, And I remember Pastor Rosemary, for example, as a child was jumping into his father's arms and peeing everywhere and jumping into that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And it's that. And then I think, too, how smart do you have to be to understand? We're mm-hmm. never going to understand it. Yeah. Completely, you know, God gives us what we need to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you yourself, as an adult who has potentially many master's degrees, understand how? You know, this water and the word can save you, even as an adult. Can you, can you really comprehend that, or do you accept it as a means of grace and through faith you trust in that promise? And, and then I'm going on a, a Christ topic. When you, I drive a car, I have no idea. I've heard explanations of how a car works. 
<laughs> then you go to the mechanic shop and they ask you what's wrong. You're like, you try to imitate the noise that it makes, and it's like, it's the best I can do. Sorry, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then with you know children, while we're on that, we'll kind of divert there. But you know, even from in the womb. A baby can still recognize the voice of his mother, of his father. Mm-hmm. You know, you can see, you know, the baby kind of starting to punch and nudge around and being excited at the voice of his parents. And so if a baby can recognize the voice of his earthly parents, how much more could he recognize and respond to the voice of his father spoken through the word there? And so to somehow say that, well, those are completely different, what are, you, what are you doing to the word of God then? Or yeah, is it not? Exactly. Yeah. So, on that point, getting now to how infants can in fact have faith. And so, you know, their argument is that, well, because infants can't profess their faith or do all that, therefore they can't have faith, therefore they can't have a baptism because it's not a believer's baptism. But if faith is equated with intellect, what do you then do about someone who suffers from dementia, who suffers from a mental handicap of that and can't verbally speak? Are we now putting a requirement on faith as being able to articulate that in an intelligible way? So an anecdotal story, we, had, we have some friends and their child has severe Down syndrome, and you know, he's nonverbal or anything like that. But his favorite part about going to church on Sunday, he runs up to the communion rail, and he wants a blessing from the pastor. That's just his favorite part, absolutely favorite. So, you know, he won't sit still through the hymns or do all that. It's, you know, too noisy there. But he loves being up there and getting that blessing from the pastor. And so would you say that because he can't articulate that, you can't have faith. Like, I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit can work through means that we can't comprehend. Do you think a baby or a child or anyone not being able to verbalize it is going to stop the Holy Spirit from being able to work in and through them and work that faith? How can we, how can we say that there? And so now getting on to a few passages in support of how infants can, in fact, have faith. I'm going to look at one of the passages Neil was talking about in Matthew 18. Uh, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So one of the little ones who believe in me. Well, how is it that they can believe that they can't verbalize and come to this decision? But yet we're told that they believe. Likewise, in 2 Timothy three fourteen to 15, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then now to John the Baptist in 
Elizabeth's womb there in Luke 1, 15, and then 41. Speaking of John the Baptist, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And then in 41, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, used as brephos, the same one as in Luke, speaking of the little children coming to Jesus, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so there, twice just within one chapter, we have, even from within the womb, John is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the brephos, not even an infant outside the womb, but still within the womb, leaping for joy at the presence of his Savior, who is still in Mary's womb at the time. And so I know it's hard for us to wrap our head around how can an infant have faith? How does that work? But in fact, if the Holy Spirit can work faith in us, can we say that the Holy Spirit can't work faith in an infant? Even if we ourselves can't comprehend it, are we going to say that he is somehow limited in that ability? Of course not. So before we move on to their favorite point of the thief on the cross, any other, any other thoughts on infant faith or anything else I've talked about? All right. So here's their favorite, favorite rebuttal against infant baptism is, well, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized, and Jesus said, you will be with me today in paradise. So therefore, baptism isn't necessary or anything like that. I'm sorry, but if the Son of God is in the flesh, standing or hanging right next to you there, and says, today you'll be with me in paradise, I think that's pretty certain, and he's not limited to working through the means of grace that he has established for our benefit. He can work, as Pastor Rody likes to say, he can do whatever he wants. And so if he says, today you'll be with me in paradise, he can do that. And so that doesn't negate the necessity of baptism. It doesn't negate that whole biblical teaching of why we baptize infants. Yet they like to point to that and try to say, well, that's why we don't do it. (laughs) So now we're going to get to the tough topic of stillborn children and looking at that and what we do with that in terms of baptism and what Scripture does say and what it doesn't say and ultimately where we have to draw that line and not try to come up with our own answers outside of what Scripture itself says. But in Romans ten seventeen, Paul writes, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So now we can know that a child, even still in the womb, like we had talked about, can recognize the voice of his parents. So likewise, if you're bringing your child, even still in the womb, to church, you're reading the Scriptures, there is still hearing being had through that. So the Holy Spirit can work through that means of the spoken word. 
Another one is the death of David's son in 2 Samuel 12. And so you remember that, you know, David is set, or David is told that his son is going to die. And so he, David fasts, he prays and everything. His child still does die. But then we're told, you know, the, his servants go to him and say, you know, why are you now suddenly eating and everything? You know, your child just died. And he makes a comment that, you know, he will see his child again. But makes a point that the child was, leave it specific and says seven days old. And on the seventh day, which would have been before the eighth day of circumcision, which is the Old Testament covering under the, you know, the law of Abraham and that covenant there. And so we're not led to believe that, you know, David was incorrect in that statement or anything. So we could potentially draw some hope and some comfort from that. Also in Mark 16, 16, you know, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And so it's really the refusal of that gift of baptism that is so detrimental there. Likewise with the refusal of going to the Lord's Supper, neglecting reading and hearing God's word. You know, if you're continuously refusing his gifts, what does that do to your faith of not being nurtured through his word and through the supper? Likewise with baptism of if you're refusing that gift of God there, that can be detrimental. But if the child isn't given the opportunity of, say, the child dies in the womb or dies before a pastor can come to the hospital and perform an emergency baptism or even you yourselves can do an emergency baptism, you know, there isn't that refusal there. So while we're not given the promise of, you know, Everyone until this certain age is under this blanket period of grace that some churches will teach. You know, at the end of the day, we don't have all the answers. You know, God doesn't give us this is the answer in this situation and this is the answer in that situation. But we know that God is good and God is gracious, that he is just, that whatever he decides is good, gracious, and just. And so we're not going to add to the words of Scripture or try to say, well, you know, what that really means is X, Y, and Z. But we know who God is through his word, and so we lean on that trust, and we believe in what he has said. And that's ultimately where we have to draw the line before we start trying to go off in all these different, well, what ifs on that, and then Come up with answers that aren't in accord with what Scripture teaches there. But heavy topic there. So, does anyone have any thoughts or anything before we move on? Okay. A few more thoughts. Um, let's see. So, why we use it in the baptismal liturgy itself? Again, so the other churches will say, well, it doesn't even talk about baptism. What is Christ saying here? Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. How do you become partakers of that kingdom? How do you receive adoption except through baptism? 
So he's not spelling it all out here of, well, to such beliefs that belongs the kingdom of God if they're baptized, and you know, he's spelling it all out for us. But we know from the rest of Scripture how you receive the kingdom of God. You know, John 3 talks about that as well, of you know, being born by the water and the Spirit, being born from above and that. And so you don't always have to spell it out in every single passage. You know, Jesus isn't going to teach here the full doctrine of baptism whenever these little kids are on his lap. But also this passage isn't in isolation here. We have the rest of Scripture, the rest of his teachings that help to inform this other part as well. And so we can't just take it piecemeal of, well, if we just take this one passage in isolation, here's the conclusions we draw from it, and here's everything else that we deny. We take Scripture in its totality of what is being taught here, and so then that helps inform us in these other passages here. In the Great Commission, uh, Jesus, uh, can we take the sequence in which he says things, make disciples by number one, baptizing, and then number two, teaching? Mm-hmm. Is that an important sequence that we can understand that baptism comes, teaching comes afterwards? Mm-hmm. Just, just wondering. Yeah, because, I mean, how do you, so you baptize, let's say, a child, you just, well, we baptize them and wash our hands of that and never, you know, talk about the faith again. Is that just a punch card? You know, get your ticket in. Likewise, even with adults, say someone comes to the faith, you baptize them and, well, see ya, have a good life. We'll see you in heaven one day and let's not ever speak about this whole faith thing and Jesus thing again. What's that going to do to the faith? And so it's necessary to teach your children be in the word with others and all of that to help nurture that faith. And so, yeah, I definitely think that is important you know, sequence there. But does, does, is that, you're saying that make disciples, but I don't think it says that in all the scriptures. It says go into all the world and teach, baptizing them. Yeah, but it, what would it be if the other gospels? I don't think they all say make disciples. I think it just says go into all the world, teach, and baptize. It's go into all the world, teach, and baptize. Yeah. <laughs> I... The way I interpret it is, no, it's, you're just doing what God commands, which is go in and baptize. Go and teach and baptize. So, so yeah, they can be trained a lot or they're little or just, hey, hey, I come to faith and they baptize. I think the important thing there is that it kind of goes hand in hand. It's not baptize, stop, teach, stop. It's baptize and teach together. And so, you know, with adults, teaching does come first, and then you baptize. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
It means much more than just teach. It's a very specific. Teaching all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So then we're looking at all of Scripture as being the source of that teaching. But I think what uh, Barry's point is, is do you have to have the whole, because Paul talks about the whole counsel of God and Acts, but that's not what you're talking about. You're wanting to know what's the requirement for baptism, and the requirement is just believe in Jesus, period. Mm-hmm. No, I, no my, my point was, he says, go and make disciples, and then... Is he saying, then, this is how you make disciples. You baptize them, and then you teach them. Is that what he's saying? Is that what it means in the Greek, I guess? This is how, go and make disciples, full stop, period. Baptize them, and then teach them. Yeah, I don't think the order would... So the... The tight logical or theological ordering isn't necessary, either from the text or in reality, right? In fact, the church has long acknowledged um, that you treat the person as they are. So you've got an adult, they've got all kinds of obstacles in the way as to what is baptism. You know, if you take a, if, if you've had a little person in your home and you say, hey, this is what baptism is, they don't say, well, actually, and then put up a whole bunch of different rebuttals. They say, oh, that's wonderful. Okay, so when you're dealing with a little person, uh, you might need some teaching. You might need no teaching at all. When you're dealing with someone like the Ethiopian eunuch, you take a minute and describe what it is he's reading, who Jesus is, what Jesus commands. And that's actually, if you look at that reading, um, he says it's just simply implied that Philip's testimony about the Lord Jesus, as it comes from Isaiah, includes our Lord's command to be baptized. And then the Ethiopian eunuch goes, well, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized. So as we engage with uh, adults, as we engage with people on the whole spectrum of age, you're going to find varying levels of uh, resistance or non-resistance, which require preemptive teaching or not preemptive teaching. I mean, even so little as, hey, this is what baptism is. Let's get you baptized. Great, dad. Uh, Or if it's a child, that's just within, or or say an infant, rather, uh, that's within your uh, privilege and responsibility in the vocation of parent, you know, and and this is part of the the bigger reversal that the church in America has wrought and wreaked havoc on good biblical theology. So they will tell their children when to go to bed or put their child to bed without waiting for a decision. They'll feed their child without waiting for a decision. They'll bathe their child without waiting for a decision. They'll bring their child to church without waiting for a decision. They'll do all these things because they know it's good and right. And the same thing is true for baptism. It's entirely artificial that Satan has driven this wedge in. Well, with this one thing, you've got to make sure that their free will is operative. Why? Everything else, you don't treat them as neutral, including Christian parents, bringing them to church. 
You don't stop and wait for the age of accountability and then ask your kid, hey, would you like to turn off Blue's Clues and accompany me to divine service? No? Okay, I guess we'll wait. So the whole thing betrays itself as this flip-flop of, uh, of free will and the whole concept within American Christianity where they don't allow their children to make all of these other lesser decisions, but insist that their child make this greater decision. You can see how that's just simply reversed. The most important things you take care of for your child without them asking or without them agreeing to it, especially, because it's what's best for them, right? So you insist, no, you're going to take a shower, (laughs) or you throw them into the tub. You insist upon it. You don't wait for their free will. You don't care if their free will agrees or disagrees. It's what's necessary for you. And that's part of the goodness of being a parent. And so that's, that's the way in which we approach people is, well, well, why wouldn't you be baptized? Don't you want your sins washed away? And if there's no objections, by all means, baptize. You don't have to do some protracted thing here. Uh, but if there are all kinds of objections and questions and history that leads one to, you know, leads such a person to reject Christ or not know who Christ is, or, well, then you've got to do some teaching before you can get them to those baptismal waters. Makes sense? So it's just this kind of general pastoral care of people. Um, and, and again, Matthew 28 isn't really setting out a specific logic or theological order that must, in all cases, be followed. It pays to have pastor here to help out. <laughs> it's good. Any other thoughts on that? We're going to be running a little short on time to be able to, don't want to start the rich young man and only get through first couple verses and then have to just recap it anyways next week because different people were here or not here. But So any other reflections on this passage? You're looking, Chris. Oh, okay. All right, so we'll go ahead and end there and then pick up next week in verse 17 with the rich young man. So the Lord be with you.